Hi, welcome back to Tales of a Shockingly Strange Past. I'm your host, Jessica. In this episode, I talk about the Waco siege and the events that unfolded at Mount Carmel during the 51-day standoff. Under the blistering Texas sun, investigators comb the smoldering remains of the Branch Davidian compound. More than 80 people are believed to have died in yesterday's fiery conclusion to the 51-day siege, 24 of them children. Today, the FBI said it's not responsible for the deaths. Hello, friends. How are you guys? I hope you're all well, happy, and healthy. So, I am switching to putting out episodes every other Sunday instead of every Sunday. I just need that extra time for research and to do other things because believe it or not, my life doesn't always revolve, revolve. I'm having a hard time talking today. So yeah, that might happen a few times in this episode and I'm just going to like scream or just say fuck and then continue on. So bear with me. But anyway, I have more things on my mind than true crime. I mean, I think about it a lot and I think about the podcast a lot, but sometimes I'm busy. You get it. I know you get it. So I'll see you every other week instead of every week. Before we get into this episode, I have to tell you a quick little story that happened to a girlfriend of mine from work. So Her name is Christiana, just going to tell you her first name, very sweet, very genuine, easy to get along with. Well, she was jumped over Halloween weekend, her and her two other girlfriends while out at Cal U. The reason why I'm putting this out there is because after she had told me this story, I had then heard and found out that this isn't the first time it's happened out there. So if you go to school there or you have friends that go to school there and you're going out there, just be safe, be careful. Um, It was a random attack. They were leaving a party. They're getting ready to get into their vehicle to leave. And all of a sudden, this group of people, she said around 10 men and women, just start verbally attacking them, just screaming at them, profanities you know, just saying whatever. It's three females, you know, by themselves. I'm sure that they are calling them out of their names. Obviously, they don't know them. So um, it was random. And then they approach and attack them. They throw my friend on the ground. There is a man on top of her hitting her along with women as well. She notices that one of her other girlfriends is also on the ground being hit kicked. And then her third friend um, has another man and some more females just in her face screaming at her. And they are telling her that they will do anything for BRG. So those letters kept on being said, um, we'll do anything for BRG. This is for BRG. So it kind of seemed like it was some type of gang initiation. I don't know. But just be safe. If you guys go to Cal U, be aware of your surroundings and be careful. Yeah. So let's get into the episode. I have always been interested in this. Um, 
It's crazy. It's such a divided, you know, case really, because it's like, what really fucking happened here? It's just insane. Um, I am going to put a listening disclaimer on it. There is possible suicide, child abuse, questionable uh, federal agent tactics, and then of course, um, people do die. So if you don't want to hear that kind of thing, I would just skip past it. I would probably skip past every episode I put out if you don't like that kind of thing. But yeah. So this week's episode is on the Waco siege, also known as the Waco massacre. Like I said, too, I'm having a hard fucking time talking. I'm not going to lie. This is my second time recording because I can't get my H's and W's right. What the fuck? So let's give it a go. On February 28th, 1993, cameraman Jim Peeler unknowingly tipped off David Koresh and the Branch Davidians about an ATF raid that was in the process of happening. He stopped and asked a postal worker for directions to the compound at Mount Carmel. Peeler had no idea he was talking to the son of a member of the religious religious sect, and when the man asked why he needed to go to the compound, he told him about the raid. David Jones, the postal worker, went straight to the compound to let David Koresh and his over 100 followers know about the impending raid. The Branch Davidians were a splinter group of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they believed that the apocalypse was coming. And when David Koresh came to lead the group, he claimed to be the Messiah. A current affair told ABC News, quote, he claimed that when he was a child, God had spoken to him and said, quote, you're the chosen one. You are my Messiah, end quote. The so-called cult lived in seclusion at the compound. David Buns, a former Davidian, told ABC News in 2018 that they lived the way they did to avoid the world. Buns said one of the things... Bun said, quote, one of the things about being a branch, Div- branch Davidian was you're supposed to separate yourself from the world, end quote. The world is the sins, the flesh, the desires of the world, and you're supposed to be spiritual, end quote. That was actually the end quote. I said it too early. Sorry. There's going to be a lot of, well, quite a few quote end quotes in this one because There's so much information. There were people who came out of the compound. So there's actual statements from former Branch Davidians. And I wanted to put some of their accounts in here, of course, so you could see what it was like for them living in the compound. So there's a few. So don't mind that. Uh, This also meant that the Branch Davidians were all celibate, except for David Koresh, who procreated with his many wives, at which one point he had near 20. He was just like, oh, that's your wife? Not anymore. Koresh believed in the seven seals from the Bible's book of Revelation. Followers said that Koresh believed he was on a mission from God and that he was the only one who could interpret the Bible and its true meanings for the masses. He also believed that the, uh, that the group would one day be under attack by the U.S. government and encouraged his followers to stock the compound with guns and ammunition. Buns also stated, quote, 
His his message changed over the years because he was always looking for the next big thing to teach that would shock people into listening to him. It was important for David Koresh to isolate the group from the world because the world is an influence that is constantly pulling and distracting you from the message, end quote. Joanne Vega was just six years old when she lived at the compound. She remembers Koresh constantly telling them that the end of the world was coming and that they were, quote, the chosen people to survive because David was the son of God, end quote. She said they were taught to, pre- to prepare for war and that the end times as predicted in the book of Revelation was near. She also remembers being hit repeatedly as a kid and that discipline was a constant for the children at the compound. She said, quote, there's nothing that you could do right is how I felt as a kid. That fear that nothing you can do is going to be good enough. You're raised with just fear. Everywhere is fear, end quote. that's sad there was a lot of kids there so it's just so weird to me because before I started researching this again just more recently I don't know why actually I do it's because of the show that was came out um I guess it's probably been about maybe three or so years on Paramount Network they did a I don't know, maybe eight to 10 episode series on Waco. And it was wonderful. They did an excellent job. Um, and it was great. I actually watched it again when it came to Netflix. But anyway, in that show, David Koresh as a father is just portrayed as just this loving, doting, paying attention, not abusive father, but reading all this research again, I'm like, wait, was he? There's actual accounts of child abuse, maybe even sexual child abuse. And I'm like, whoa, I had no idea. So it's really, really scary. So I can get why a child would be living in fear while living at the compound. At about 9.30 a.m. on Sunday, February 28th, 1993, agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms had a plan to execute arrest and search warrants against David Koresh and the Branch Davidian compound. The plan was to try and approach the compound as quietly as possible so the people inside would not know they were coming. The agents knew that the knew that inside the compound was an arsenal of illegal weapons and ammunition and people who knew how to use them. Trying to prevent a shootout, they were approaching the compound when they got word that Koresh knew they were on their way from the postal worker, which again, I just, I watched a documentary and oh my gosh, I feel so bad for that cameraman, that Jim Peeler, he was on there And you could just see it in his eyes just how horribly sorry he still feels to this day about ruining this plan that they executed, you know. But it was an honest accident. So trying to prevent a shootout, uh, they were approaching the compound. Oh, shit. I just read that. The agents were told to still follow the plan and continue to Mount Carmel. Once the trucks pulled up to the compound, agents saw Koresh standing at the front entrance of the compound and started to approach him. Koresh turned and walked back into the compound, the doors closed, and the gunfire started. 
Both surviving Branch Davidians and surviving agents claim the other side fired first. The raid resulted in a long gun battle that killed four ATF agents and six Branch Davidians. An additional 16 agents were also injured. The FBI was getting involved in taking over for the ATF. Brian Sage was the first FBI negotiator to arrive on scene after the disastrous raid shootout. Sage remained the lead negotiator throughout the 51-day standoff, speaking frequently to David Koresh and his number two, Steve Schneider. Another thing, too, is the people like this guy, Steve Schneider, I can't exactly remember what he did, but he, a lot of these people were very smart, college educated, I mean, with like bachelors and things. Very, very smart. Ah, shit. I wish I would have looked to see what he did because him and then there was another couple, unless it was his wife, I don't remember, but... A lot of the head people were just so intelligent. So it was surprising to these federal agents that somebody like David Koresh, who didn't have, you know, a college education, he he definitely wasn't as smart. He may have been a smooth talker, but he wasn't as smart as some of these other people that he was able to get them to follow him. They believe that he really was the son of God, this Messiah. So, which is why they stood next to him. Um, so Sage, he remained the lead negotiator. Um, some days Koresh and Snyder would cooperate over the phone and come to agreements and other days they would argue and not agree on anything. Sage would try to convince Koresh to allow some of the people and children to come out. David told them that told them that the people were free to leave if they wanted to, but that didn't seem to be true when no one was coming out. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the the timeline of what happened during those 51 days. And it is going to be like individually said I will give you, um, you know, my reference article, who wrote it at the end. They did an amazing job doing this, you know, it was was just like a perfectly written timeline of exactly what happened during those days. Now, there was a lot that I did leave out as well, but there's just so much. I mean, we would, we could be here for like days talking about this, honestly, because 51 days, a standoff, it's, it's never happened before. It's never happened since. So it's a lot. Okay. So let's start with the day of the raid and shootout, Sunday, February 28th, 1993. Jeff Jamar is named the on-site commander Telephone conversations between Koresh and the hostage rescue team are underway. Koresh discloses that he has been wounded in the hip and left wrist. Koresh is allowed to broadcast his religious teachings and views on Dallas Radio KRLD and does a CNN telephone interview. Michael Schroeder, a Branch Davidian, also very smart is killed while trying to re-enter the main building. President Clinton is following the events at Waco very closely throughout the day. 
Monday, March 1st, so the second day. In the early morning, President Clinton endorses a negotiated solution. Negotiations continue over the phone, and over the course of the day, 10 children are sent out of the compound. By 5 p.m., the FBI has a full-functioning command post, and FBI agents in armored vehicles surround the compound's perimeter. Koresh becomes extremely agitated when the armored vehicles move closer and when his phone line gets cut except for making outgoing calls to the negotiators. Koresh tells the negotiators at least twice that suicide is not being contemplated. Clinton and FBI Director William Sessions discuss how to handle the crisis. Sessions favors a waiting strategy, and Clinton approves this tactic. Tuesday, March 2nd. Negotiations continue into the wee hours. In the early morning, Koresh makes one a one-hour audio tape of his religious teachings, adding a promise to surrender upon the national broadcast of the tape. At 1.30 p.m., the tape is broadcast over the Christian Broadcasting Network. At 5.58 p.m., Koresh relays to negotiators that God has spoken to him and had told him to wait. Acting Attorney General Stuart Gearson states that the strategy is to talk them out no matter how long it took. Clinton agrees to deploy military vehicles for safety purposes. It's like, yeah, no matter how long it took, they were saying that on like day two, not realizing how long it actually would take. Wednesday, March 3rd, in a goodwill gesture, the FBI intervenes to have murder charges dropped against two elderly women, Davidians who had come out of the compound on March 2nd. While speaking to negotiators, Koresh accounts for his failure to surrender as agreed by saying he's, quote, dealing now with his father and not with your bureaucratic system of government, end quote. Koresh then delivers various rambling sermons focusing on a biblical matter as unlocking the seven seals and interpreting God's intentions about the end of the world. Thursday, March 4th, negotiators go back and forth for 11 hours with various Davidians, including 7 hours and 38 minutes with Koresh. Friday, March 5th, 9-year-old Heather Jones leaves the compound wearing a note pinned to her jacket. It was written by her mother stating that once the children are out, the adults will die. Koresh and his second in charge, Steve Snyder, deny that, excuse me, deny they are contemplating suicide. The FBI seeks the advice from experts on the likelihood of a mass suicide by the Davidians and receives inconsistent information. The FBI concludes that the Davidians have a one-year food supply, including an abundant of military rations or MREs, which are meals that are ready to eat. Koresh continues preaching and threatening violence. Saturday, March 6. In an early morning conversation, Snyder suggests federal agents might burn the compound down to destroy evidence. Koresh and Snyder are both highly agitated and upset for most of the day. 
the FBI becomes concerned that negotiations are at an impasse and acknowledges frustration in attempting to negotiate with Koresh. It was, they said it was just so hard talking to him, like compared to talking to Steve Schneider, because every time they would talk to Koresh, they would not get anywhere with him. It was just going in circles. He just continued to talk about, you know, give him base, give them basically teachings on these seven seals and the book of revelations and that he's the Messiah. And they just didn't want to hear it anymore from him. Honestly, they preferred to talk to Steve Snyder. Sunday, March 7th, negotiations continue with Koresh and others inside the compound, but are not going anywhere. The FBI refuses to deliver milk for the children unless more of them are released. Koresh tells agents that all the children that are left in the compound are his biological children. A memo sent out advises against tactical options in favor of establishing trust with Koresh. Monday, March 8th. Koresh's wounds seem to be healing well and the FBI delivers six gallons of milk to the compound. Webster Hubble, an acting associate Associate Attorney General, is now on the scene and is briefed by the FBI. A videotape of the children in the compound is sent out by the Davidians. After the tape is reviewed, there is concern that if the tape got released to the media, that Koresh would gain much sympathy. Tuesday, March 9th. At 2.15 a.m., the electricity to the compound is cut off. Koresh says he will not talk any further until the power is turned back on. Snyder continues to express outrage over the armored vehicles close to the compound. HRT members see weapons in the windows and firing, firing ports being cut in plywood placed in the windows. On several occasions, tactic, tactical pressure is exerted on the Davidians, either without consulting the negotiators or over the negotiators' objections. That was kind of a hard paragraph. Sorry. Stumbled a little bit on that one. Wednesday, March 10th. Electricity is temporarily cut off again. Four and a half hours of negotiations with no progress. Thursday, March 11th, Koresh does not participate in negotiations until 7.03 p.m. No progress, no progress in negotiations except for a promise that Kathy Schroeder will come out the next day. Friday, March 12th, Schroeder leaves the compound as promised and says that no mass suicide would occur. Orders were made for all electricity to be cut off for good so that the people inside the compound could experience their, the same wet and cold nights as the tactical personnel outside. The Davidians say the power shutoff is a huge, huge setback, causing Schneider and the others to change their minds about coming out. Saturday, March 13th. Schneider tells agents that the people inside the compound are cold and freezing. The FBI notifies Koresh that his mother has retained attorneys Richard Degerian, I know I'm butchering that, but Degerian, and Jack Zimmerman to represent him. 
Sunday, March 14th. At nightfall, the FBI begins to illuminate the compound with bright lights to disrupt sleep and to put additional pressure to those inside and to increase the safety of the HRT. Monday, March 15th. The FBI establishes a modified negotiation strategy insisting on a peaceful resolution but refusing to listen to any more Bible babble, which is what they called it, from Koresh, which is hilarious, Bible babble. Schneider and another Davidian, Wayne Martin, meet outside the compound with Sage and McLennan, which is another name I'm probably butchering. Sorry, guys. McLennan. County Sheriff Jack Harwell. Wednesday, March 17th, Koresh refuses to allow Schneider to have another face-to-face conversation with Sage. Sage urges Koresh to surrender, challenging his sincerity and calling on him to take some positive action. Pressure increases on Koresh. Thursday, March 18th, The FBI broadcasts a message to those inside the compound over a loudspeaker, saying they will be treated fairly if they come out. Friday, March 19th. The FBI delivers legal documents to the compound, letters from Koresh's attorneys, and other items. Koresh says he is ready to come out and face the music. Two more Davidians, Brad Branch and Kevin Whitecliffe, come out of the compound. Saturday, March 20th, another Davidian, Rita Riddle, comes out of the compound. Sunday, March 21st, at 12.15 a.m., two more women, Victorian Hollingsworth and Annetta Richards, exit the compound. Koresh says, quote, I told you that God says wait, end quote. Rita Riddle, Gladys Ottman, Sheila Martin, James Lawton, and Ophelia Santonia all came out. In the evening hours, the FBI begins playing very loud music, including Tibetan chants, over the loudspeaker system. At 11.35 p.m., Koresh says, quote, because of the loud music, nobody is coming out, end quote. Later that night, the loudspeaker system malfunctioned and the rest of the night was quiet. It's like, I mean, I know this is such a tragedy. I'm not trying to like make light or make jokes jokes over, but it's like, like a children going back and forth, you know, like, no, that's mine. No, it's mine. Just back and forth, back and forth. He says one thing, he does the other thing. They say one thing, they do the other thing. It's like children. Even though I know it is a horrible tragedy. Okay. I know that. I am not dismissing that fact. Monday, March 22nd, a meeting is called for the crisis management team to discuss strategy, discussing stress escalation measures. If that fails, the negotiators recommend recommend the introduction of tear gas as a non-lethal alternative to clear the compound. The FBI reads a new offer to Koresh, allowing him to communicate while in jail, among other things, provided all Davidians begin leaving the compound as of 10 a.m. on March 23rd. Tuesday, March 23rd. Do they leave? Assistant U.S. Attorney William Johnson of Waco writes a letter complaining about the FBI's handling of the crime scene, especially the moving of vehicles around the compound. 
At 10 p.m., the FBI shines floodlights on the compound and plays over the loudspeaker tapes of previous negotiations and messages from those who had exited the compound. Wednesday, March 24th. In wee hours, the FBI plays Tibetan chants and Christmas music. Schneider refuses to talk any further. At the daily 10.30 a.m. press briefing, the FBI escalates its verbal assault against Koresh, calling him a liar and coward. Thursday, March 25th, the FBI gives the Davidians an ultimatum. 10 to 20 people must leave by 4 p.m. or some action will be taken. At 4 p.m., armored vehicles move into the compound and remove motorcycles and go-karts. Friday, March 26. Lights, music, and helicopter activity occur throughout the night. The FBI issues another ultimatum and armored vehicles begin clearing the front side of the compound. Saturday, March 27th. Third straight day with no word from Koresh. Sunday, March 28th. FBI issues third ultimatum. At 12.26 p.m., Koresh says that he had no intention to die and he was waiting for word from God. A videotape sent out from the compound shows 19 children looking tired but healthy. Monday, March 29th. Over the objections of the assistant U.S. Sorry, let me say that again. Over the objections of the assistant U.S. attorney and Texas Rangers, Koresh is granted a face-to-face with one of his attorneys. For almost two hours, Koresh and DeGarian meet at the door and talk at the compound. Tuesday, March 30th, Koresh and DeGarian have two more meetings, and again, that is his attorney. Tuesday, April 1st, Degerium and Zimmerman, both of his attorneys, spend the day in the compound and are told by the Davidians that they will come out either April 2nd or 10th, depending on their Passover observance. Phil Arnold and Jim Tabor, two independent religious experts, appear on talk show host Ron Engelman's program, interpreting the Book of Revelations as it applies to the standoff. Sunday, April 4th. The lawyers meet again with Koresh and reiterate that everyone will come out after Passover. Monday, April 5th. The Davidians observe Passover. Tuesday, April 6th. Despite complaints, the FBI continues to broadcast music throughout the night. Wednesday, April 7th. Koresh refuses to confirm an exit date. Potts and Floyd Clark, two high-ranking FBI officials, are in Waco to discuss strategy, and HRT Commander Richard Rogers proposes a tear gas plan. Friday, April 9th, Koresh sends letter to, a letter to FBI saying, quote, Heavens are calling you to judgment, end quote. Two experts analyze the letter and conclude that he was possibly a psychotic and had no intention of leaving voluntarily. The FBI finalizes plans to use tear gas and seeks approval. Saturday, April 10th, HRT members start installing wire around the compound. Easter Sunday, April 11th. 
Meaningless negotiations take place with, with Snyder over the possible exit of three or more Davidians who end up deciding against it. Monday, April 12th, the tear gas plan is presented, not as an all-out assault, but as a, ta- a tactic where gas will be inserted in stages, initially into only one small area of the compound. The goal was to allow the exit through uncontaminated portions of the compound. It also, it also asked to cut off the water supply to the compound. Sorry, I wrote that weird. There was another suggestion to cut off the Davidian's water supply. That made more sense. Tuesday, April 13th, Koresh bombards negotiators with more Bible babble for most of the afternoon reiterating that he is not coming out until God tells him to do so. Wednesday, April 14th, a message from Koresh saying that he will not surrender until he has written a manuscript explaining the seven seals. At a meeting in Sessions' office on the tear gas plan, two military experts and the Army's Dr. Harry Salem are detailing what is known about its effect on children, even though there were never any laboratory tests performed on children relative to the effects of gas. The tear gas plan was still under review, and the FBI knew the Davidians were stocked and prepared to withstand an extended siege. Thursday, April 15th. Hubble talks by phone for two hours with Sage, who urges, who urges for action. After talking to Sage, Sage, Hubble becomes convinced that the negotiators believe there is no further hope of getting the Davidians out through negotiation. Friday, April 16th. Koresh tells negotiators that he has completed the manuscript on the first seal. Reno, who was sworn in as Attorney General, rejects the tear gas plan. Agents Sessions, Clark, and Potts hurry to Hubble's office and ask to speak to Reno. Ten minutes later, Hubble returns with Reno, who orders a written statement describing the situation inside the compound, the progress, the progress of negotiations, and the merits of the plan plus supporting documentation for all factual assertions. Sorry, but when I wrote that, I was kind of just like, what, huh? I was like, let me just add it. Some of you guys might get it. I didn't really get it, but yeah. Saturday, April 17th, Luis and Alaniz, who is not a Branch Davidian, but snuck into the compound early during the siege, comes out. Reno approves the FBI's tear gas plan, but gives the prepared material material only a slight review, leaving the tactical decisions to those at Waco. Sunday, April 18th. Reno briefs Clinton on the CS gas plan, and the president concurs, but asks questions about assuring the children's safety and adds, quote, it's your decision, end quote. Armored vehicles clear Koresh's Chevy Camaro and other vehicles away from the front of the compound. The FBI warns the Davidians to stay out of the tower, but instead they hold children up in the windows and and in another window hold a sign saying, Flames Await. Monday, April 19th. 
At 5.59 a.m., Sage telephones the Davidians, notifying them of an imminent tear gas assault. Sage reads a message over the loudspeaker advising the Davidians that they are under arrest and should come out. At 6.02 a.m., two FBI combat engineering vehicles began inserting gas into the compound through spray nozzles attached to a boom. At 6.04 a.m., the Davidians start shooting, and the FBI begin deploying Bradley vehicles to insert ferret rounds through the windows. At 6.31 a.m., the HRT reports that the entire building is being gassed. At around 7 a.m., Reno and senior, senior advisors go to the FBI Situation Room. At 7.30 a.m., a CEV breaches the front side of the building on the first floor as it injects gas, and at 7.58 a.m., gas is inserted into the second floor of the back right corner of the building. The FBI calls for more gas from outside of Waco, and at 9.20 a.m., 48 more ferret rounds arrive from Houston. At around 9.30 a.m., the supply of ferret rounds was dwindling, one CEV was having mechanical troubles, and the high winds was blowing the gas away. Another CEV began enlarging the opening in the middle front of the building, from which the Davidians could escape. A third CEV with a boom but lacking a gas delivery system breaches the rear side of the building to create openings near the gymnasium. At about 11 a.m., Reno talks to Clinton and says everything seems to be going well. At 11.40 a.m., the last ferret rounds were delivered into the compound. At 11.45 a.m., a wall on the right a wall on the right rear side of the building collapses. At 12.07 p.m., the Davidians start simultaneously firing, firing at three or more different locations within the compound. Simultaneously fires at three or more different locations within the compound. An HRT observer reports seeing, quote, a male starting a fire, end quote, in the front of the building. At 12.12 p.m., Sage calls on Koresh to lead the Davidians out to safety. Nine Davidians flee the compound and are, are arrested. At around 12.25 p.m., the FBI's, FBI hears Systematic gunfire coming from the compound, leaving several agents thinking that the Davidians are either killing themselves or each other. At 12.41 p.m., firefighting efforts begin. HRT members enter a tunnel that was built with an old school bus searching for any survivors. David Koresh and 75 of his followers had remained inside, including 23 children. Many of them had perished from thermal burns and smoke inhalation. Some appeared to have died from blunt force trauma caused by the collapsing building. Autopsies revealed that at least 20 of them, including Koresh, had either shot themselves or had been shot by other members of the sect. One three-year-old boy had been stabbed in the chest. 
Many people believe there was excessive force used by the ATF and the FBI, and civil suits were filed against the government by survivors in Next of Kin, where it's being reviewed by Congress. And many other people also wonder why Koresh and the Branch Davidians didn't surrender rather than risk renewed bloodshed. Over 25 years later, and the massacre at Waco is still heavily talked about and is such a sad tragedy. Times, Nancy Gibbs wrote, quote, The sun didn't blacken, nor the moon turn red, but the world did come to an end, just as their prophet had promised, end quote. So, yeah, that is the story of the Waco siege. And sorry if you hear that clicking. I'm just getting on my phone real quick because I want to tell you this article um, where I got a lot of this information here. I should have just screenshotted it, but you think I would do something like that? Oh, actually, it's just like a frontline article, Waco, the inside story. So if you want to know even more, I know that was already a lot what I gave to you. But if you want to know even more, check that out. Because um, it just really gives you detail for detail of what happened. A lot more names and things. But there was already so many names. I didn't want to confuse you maybe more than I already have. So, yeah. But anyway, thanks guys for listening. You can, of course, find me on Spotify, hit the subscribe button, and you will get episodes for, well, new episodes every other week now instead of every week. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at True Crimes Untold Podcast. I feel like I wanted to tell you something else. What was it? I'm going to re-listen to this, the beginning of this, and be like, fuck, that's what it was. But, oh, well, if I remember, I will tell you in two weeks. See you guys then. Bye.